Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the NSA metadata and the law. So, Richard, last week we had this ruling out of the Second Circuit that uh, Section 215 of the Patriot Act, the relevant provision here, doesn't authorize the NSA to do this bulk collection of telephone call metadata. That is the basically the records of uh, what number called what number, when, and for how long. So yes. you've had a chance to read the Second Circuit's opinion. What did you make of it? Well, I mean, I, I was somewhat of a surprise to me. Uh, if one goes back to the situation, there's nothing about this issue uh, which is novel. All of the FISA court judges had to examine this question one way or another. Uh, it has been widely discussed elsewhere. And this is the first time, I think, that the argument has actually been made and accepted that the entire program is beyond the scope of the statutory authorization. Uh, which was, I think, rather broad. Uh, the reasoning of the opinion, I think, is right on some points having to do with all of the procedural run-ups to the ultimate question as to whether or not the um, question is properly before the court. But I think the actual conclusion uh, that the um, uh, program itself is not authorized by the statute runs against both common practice and I think actually the text of the statute. So there's there's a couple of pieces there. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, you mentioned there, there's a standing issue here, and I know that we've talked before about the fact that you're sort of critical of the way that the standing um, precedents have played out in, in federal courts. Explain the role that that played here and where the court came out on it. Sure. What happens is the standing doctrine says who's in a position to challenge what it is that's going on. And in this particular case, the clear challenges could be made by the various companies who were required to collect this data and turned it over to the government. That was specified. But the question of anybody whose information was being collected could challenge it was left open. And there was not even a discussion as to whether or not citizens or taxpayers generally could challenge a program which they think is ultra-virus, the statute of the Constitution. Uh, the way in which this issue usually is resolved is somebody tries to find a particularized injury uh, for the person who wants to raise the challenge. And in this particular case, there's no particularized injury to any particular person. Everybody has their data collected. And what the court held in these circumstances is if everybody has their um, – data collected, then it follows that everybody has been injured even if the data has not been used by any government official in any way that might be detrimental to their interests. So the notion of harm in the particular case was tied to the potential of abuse or to the mere fact that the information had been collected. I think that that's rather fictional, but I think that the conclusion is correct, and I've long taken the position that where you have structural challenges, any citizen ought to be able to challenge it on the grounds that the government should not do what it's doing, much the way a shareholder should be able to challenge what a corporation does if it's beyond its powers. That's the rule of standing in most state courts. It's the rule of standing in England and so forth. And so I think it's just perfectly appropriate to get the matter before the court without having to decide this rather silly question of whether or not you think that the collection of information is sufficient to give you standing as an individual who's aggrieved. Um, so I don't like the grievance standard in this particular case, and so therefore I'm not willing very much to manipulate it. I think the issue should have been squarely before the court. Now, what about that that substantive question? What's gotten all the attention was the the court saying that this text of Section two hundred and fifteen of the Patriot Act 
is not sufficiently broad to have justified what the NSA was doing there. What do you make of that part of the ruling? Well, I think that part of the ruling is probably wrong. Um, I think what was quite striking about the way the decision was written is that it takes one phrase having to do with the question of whether or not this is relevant to an investigation of foreign intelligence um, uh, dealing with such matters as international terrorism or clandestine intelligence activities. They just look at the word authorized and relevant and they don't look at the full statute. The way the statute is organized is that there's a huge intake that is contemplated by the statute. Uh, what's left of it, we do not know. And then the stuff is supposed to sit there. Uh, once it gets there, it's divided into two halves. If it turns out that there's some kind of discussion involving foreigners who are not protected under the statutory scheme, uh, that stuff can be analyzed. Uh, but the statute goes through what is called a minimization provision in which you try to take out as many of the references as possible to domestic sources. The other stuff, which is purely domestic, just sits there until there's some higher justification for calling it forward. Um, so what happens is this is not the typical kind of criminal investigation of a past action. It's an investigation that is designed to deal with international terrorism, which is not a particular offense but a movement, and clandestine intelligent activities of other nations, which is exactly the same thing. Uh, you can, when you know that somebody's been killed or murdered or property's been stolen – find a particular way in which to narrow the investigation because you're trying to solve a particular past event. But in this case, as your investigations are going forward in order to prevent certain things from happening and you have no idea where they are. And so the basic logic of the statute is take all this stuff in, look at some of it right away and put rest of it in storage so that you have it available when as and if it turns out that there's some good reason to believe that you're onto a hot lead that might be able to stop this stuff. So uh, the key issue in this particular case is not whether the information is collected. It surely is. The information that you want to know about is whether it's been used improperly, whether it has been an abusive practice. And what's striking about the decision that Gerard Lynch made and about all the work that the ACLU did is that there's not a single instance of which they report in which the actual statutory scheme with its institutional safeguards has not been respected. So the way the statute is worded, it seems to me that investigation has to be far broader in this context than it does with ordinary criminal situations and that what you then have to do is to ask the question as to whether the institutional safeguards have held. And there's this kind of real irony here. This statute seems to have worked pretty well in terms of the contemplated balance. There are other people like the IRS who collect information which is much more explicit and they seem to me to be engaged in fairly abusive activity and yet nothing is done about them. So I think what you're really seeing here is just an enormous distaste for the intelligence program of the United States, which is then allowed to influence, I think, in the wrong direction, the way in which the statutory provisions have been read. Um, this case, of course, is in some sense almost moot because the entire thing is up for uh, reauthorization, that is the Patriot Act, as of June 1st. And so this will only influence the nature of the debate. But I think that influence could be rather large in which lots of people will say, look, you see it turns out that the privacy debate should be resolved this way because what we've done is on a staggering scale unimagined by anybody else. I have to confess I was not surprised by the Snowden revelations. I assume that the United States was always doing something of that scale one way or another. My concern was not with the scope of the operation, but rather with its potential for abuse, which I don't think existed here. You mentioned Edward Snowden there. There has been a lot of 
talk in the media in the days since this decision was handed down that this decision is essentially a, a vindication of everything that Edward Snowden was was working for. Do you see it that way? Well, I mean, certainly if enough people start to see it that way, then I have to see it that way. I did read several of those columns, and frankly, I was absolutely taken aback by them. I mean, Snowden ran overseas for a particularly good reason. Um, He did violate all of his oaths on offices, and he did give information to foreign nations. I mean, my guess is he's probably engaged in criminal conduct if what he does is goes public, even with the question as to the scope of these activities, because that's not within his job description. But if he did that, it would be far less damaging to this nation than supplying the kind of information he was talking about uh, to foreign nations, which seems to have been the case. And what's so characteristic about Mr. Snowden is he constantly sort of portrays himself as an individual who cherishes his own privacy and doesn't want to be smied on and snooped by anybody else. But he has yet to tell us exactly what information he gave to foreign governments, why he did it, what they know, and whether or not he's continuing to cooperate them while he's sitting around there somewhere in Russia. So I don't see there's any reason why to praise somebody who does that. I think if he was really upset about this situation, there were committees in Congress to which he could have referred the matter and they could have conducted a rational investigation, which should have been able to get some degree of public attention. Uh, so the uh, the worship of this man simply surprises me and it doesn't please me to see that it comes mainly from libertarian types of one sort or another. Um, I think in effect he's done very serious wrong. Uh, my view is that uh, – the program is one that has to be based on its, debated on its merits. And as I've said before, to me, the question is not whether or not there's been a lot of collection of data. The key question is whether or not the data that has been collected has been abused. And of that, there is not yet a single shred of serious evidence. You mentioned that we've got this debate going forward because this section of the Patriot Act is is coming up for reauthorization. There seems to be three camps in Congress and the Senate on this. One is you reauthorize this section exactly as it was before. That's the position that's held by Mitch McConnell and Marco Rubio and some others. Then you've got the civil libertarians who want to filibuster this, keep the government from collecting the information altogether. That's the Rand Paul position. And then in the middle, you've got this very sort of eclectic group, which ranges from Ted Cruz on the one side to Patrick Leahy on the other, who are backing something called the USA Freedom Act. And what that would do is get the government out of the business of collecting this metadata, just have the telephone companies keep it in a searchable format, but the government would have to go to court to be able to get an order to search those numbers. And they'd also set up this sort of adversarial process in which there'd be people arguing before the FISA court for the privacy rights of the people whose information is being searched. Anything about that strike you as a reasonable compromise? Well, look, I mean, first of all, you have to put the three positions in perspective. It's not as though the compromise is pretty much to the middle. The compromise is much closer to the current statute than the other situation. Um, What I think about this is I'm a little bit uneasy about the way in which the FISA court is organized. All of its members are appointed by the chief justice under the concurrent configuration. I think it's always a mistake to give one person that kind of power, and I would rather see it spread around to the other justices if you're going to have, say, 18 justices 
justices. Let each of the senior justices on the Supreme Court appoint two of them. So I certainly am in favor of that. I think that the idea that you want to have somebody who can argue before the FISA court about the general principles is a perfectly sensible situation. I'm always nervous about ex parte type deliberations and I'm not somebody who has naive trust of the government. So I think that that is a perfectly sensible situation. I'm ambivalent. Uh, I don't know enough. I don't think anyone quite knows enough about the suggestion that you leave all of this information in the hands of the telephone companies instead of putting it in the hands of the United States. If I had thought there had been some systematic abuse of the current situation, I might be in favor of that. But generally speaking, my inclinations run in the opposite direction because there's always going to be at least some confusion about the way in which this information is going to be accessed, how long it's going to take to get it over there and so forth. And in an emergency, minutes or seconds could actually make something of a difference. I'm also not thrilled about the fact that the telephone companies then have to take this particular obligations on and they may be subject to all sorts of internal pressures, which who knows might lead them to do things that they would in retrospect start to forget. So that last piece of the situation I'd want to hear more about before I committed it to it one way or another. But I would guess I would have to be persuaded that that turns out to be wise. What is perfectly clear is that you can't use the old language now, given the Second Circuit decision, uh, because somebody's going to say what you're doing is you're authorizing whatever it is that was authorized by the Second Circuit. And remember, if in fact they say that this is only to be construed on the scale of an ordinary criminal investigation, that's exceedingly narrow. What the Obama administration has already done, for example, is to tighten up the standards of relevance and to say that when you sort of check one connection leading to another connection leading to another connection, that's the so-called hop question, uh, they're only willing to go now two hops instead of three hops. Uh, So you've already had some administrative compromise on this particular point at the presidential level. My own view is that that's probably not a wise decision, all things considered, because again, if you have three hops and you just keep it all in storage, uh, the real question you have to ask is when you have to open these things up, do you have the data available. And you know, just think of this in the simplest way. There are many crimes that we've only been able to solve because we've had cameras running all the time. And when you think of the massacres that took place in Boston, it was a Macy's camera rather than a government camera which actually collected the information. So it's a funny thing to evaluate, Troy. That is, you get this information. Most of the time, most of it's going to be worthless. Uh, But there are going to be a very low percentage of cases in which some of this information may be absolutely vital. And generally speaking, it's extremely hard to figure out what you're supposed to do when you have low probability events which have very high rates of failure associated with them. And in this particular case, my stuff is to collect the information and to watch it carefully rather than to say that you can't collect it at all. And what I found dismaying about the Second Circuit decision and also about all the articles that have been written on this thing by Noah Feldman, for example, in Bloomfield News, is they're cheering squads who never actually look at the full scheme and ask whether or not the pieces are put in proper balance one to another. And as I said again, in the absence of abuse and in in the presence of these minimization provisions, uh, the case for the Second Circuit decision struck me as weak. Final question that I'll put to you, and this is one sort of at the the principles level – for libertarians, I mentioned the folks on Capitol Hill who wanted to kill this program altogether, that want no mass collection of the metadata, metadata no matter who's doing it. One of those people, as I think I mentioned, is Rand Paul, and he wrote a piece for Time magazine in the wake of this ruling, praising it, calling for an end to the NSA program. And Richard, the first clause 
of the sentence that he concludes this piece with, it sounds almost word for word like Barack Obama from the 2008 presidential campaign. He says, quote, the sacrifice of our personal liberty for security is and will forever be a false choice. How do you react to that assertion? I think he's nuts. I mean, that's clearly everybody understands that there's going to be some kind of a trade-off. If it turned out that we had no threats from anybody anywhere, nobody would want to collect any kind of data because then it can only do harm and not good. Uh, but the reason that we do this is we're trying to figure out in an uncertain world what precautions we take in advance that will make us better able to deal with the threat of force from some other parties. That always requires some kinds of a trade-off. And what happens is Rand Paul's libertarian seems to think that uncertainty is not something that you have to worry about and that you can therefore treat this as all this or all that. Uh, the whole point of this particular scheme is to put into place very elaborate institutional safeguards that will allow you to collect and if necessary use the information in question. And it's not as though the operations internal to the NSA are, are casual or slapdash about it. Anybody who's involved in that organization who deviates from standard protocol is summarily dismissed from their current position. Everybody understands what the drill is. And to sort of ignore all of this stuff and to say that it's a false choice may sound heroic now, but God forbid that something should happen and we don't have the information that we need in order to counter threats. Uh, people will wonder why it is that we do this. I mean, Rand Paul calls himself a libertarian and I think on many issues he is and on some issues I agree with him. Uh, but the one thing that a libertarian has to recognize and accept is that threats of force are the kinds of things that it's legitimate for governments to deal with, and that's exactly what we're trying to deal with here. The fact that they're remote, diffuse, and uncertain doesn't mean that they're deadly. The single hardest question in the law of defense is how far back from the immediate offense do you go? It's clearly you can't wait until the blow has been struck in order to try to defense yourself. You have to anticipate it in some way, and this sort of anticipation by the collection of data seems to me to be a very sensible compromise. As I indicated before, uh, the Cruz-Leahy position in the middle is actually closer to the administrative position. Um, I am not persuaded on all of these changes, though, as I indicated, I'm persuaded on some. But I don't think you could go forward with the same text that you had, given what the Second Circuit has said and given the fact that this case will never go to the Supreme Court. It seems to me that the language has to be made a bit clearer as to exactly what the scope of the authorization is. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. Hoover.org.